0: Welcome to Get Vertical with Mike McCauley, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of growth and overcoming challenges and lessons learned along the way. Sharing how we win both in business and in life by getting vertical. Join host Mike McCauley and his guests as we dive into leadership strategy, personal growth, success stories, and more. Tune in to learn how to fulfill your personal and professional goals and how you can get vertical on the many challenges you face today. So as, as you think about it right because you've trained thousands dare I say over ten thousand maybe tens of thousands of yeah, I mean thousands tens thousand. of thousands of people at this point um you've traveled all over the world to your point five million plus miles, and you're looking back and you're saying, okay, what's the impact of leadership when you think about root cause for what what drives growth and creates value for companies. The way I think about it, and I think there was something that you taught me along the way, which is, you know, when you look at metrics, there's activity-based metrics, there's market-based and financial-based, right? And the financial-based metrics are um, lagging indicators, right? Um, And market is typically real-time or lagging, as well, right? And activity is a, is a leading indicator. Um, but a lot of times what, I, what I've seen, and what I'm curious if this is what, what you're seeing as well, is the companies that are building and creating true value, uh, there's activities that go into it, and then there's also a, a belief system that withstands the pressure of the external world.
1: Yes, exactly, exactly. Well, this is one of the things we actually tested a little bit in our um, recent research. You could, this is a little bit oversimplified, but you could divide it into results versus capabilities. That's one way, I think, of thinking about it. Um, There is a huge pressure on executives today for the results. There's not nearly enough pressure on them for the capabilities. Um, And if you think about it, let's imagine you know, we were going to go rock climbing, we're at the base of Al Capitan, you know, we're looking there. Let's imagine, you know, we've got a little, little extra weight, the muscles aren't too toned, we've got the wrong footwear, you know, we don't have any capabilities, Mike, but boy, we want results, you know, how's that going to work for us, right? But if you think about almost any inhuman endeavor, you apply the same thing, right? whether it be somebody who wants to be really good at golf, or somebody good at violin, or they're going to build their capabilities, and then the results come. But maybe the one exception is business. Here, you got a bunch of people hyper focused on the results. And many of them are not thinking about building the capabilities. And there's a couple reasons for that, I think. One is, the leader is thinking, I just read a or started to read a book on how to be a great CEO. And it was really about the CEO, wasn't it wasn't about the company, you know? I mean, that C-level suite, those leaders, they are stewards, you said the word there. They should be, they, they didn't deserve, it's not like they're in this position because they've been handled the laurel wreath. These folks have been handled a trowel, you know? They're supposed to keep building this thing. And what happens is I think a lot of executives look at their retirement as the finish line and they should be looking at handing off a baton and what are the capabilities that they are building for the future so i think that's a mark of a a leader they don't get overly to your point don't get overly focused on the results right now improving look how good i am they get focused on building a really strong company building those capabilities Knowing that they'll leave it longer, uh, stronger than they. Yeah, found it.
0: it's it's well said. I I think you know a lot of times, um, people forget that you know it. What you're striving for as far as your outcome sometimes should not be that. That should be a byproduct, right? Um, it's right. it's that notion, mm-hmm. right? That it, if you take care of your customers, your customers will take care of you, right? Versus if right. I try to extract value from my customer, if I try to win, if I look at my relationship with a customer as being a competition and I'm trying mm-hmm. to get more out of the deal than I'm giving, right? Then I'll win yeah. that one transaction, mm-hmm. but but yeah, there won't right. be another, right? Or maybe maybe there'll yep. be two or three others if I'm the only player in the market, right, that can satisfy their mm-hmm. needs at that mm-hmm. moment. But, you know, they're looking for a way out immediately, right? Vers- exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Versus if I look at it, I'm like, okay, wait, I want to over deliver and overserve, um and make sure I give them more value than I get in return. Then that's that's
1: going to come back, right? Yeah, that's right. It, it's It boils down to market facing innovation, I think. You know, it's, it's delivering real value to the customers. And, and a lot of it, it, if you can, differentiated value. That's what will be there for the long-term. And then there's a lot of service, a lot of other things that wrap around it. But, you know, one of the things that was interesting in our research, we asked people about what initiatives they were working on. And my experience has been a lot of executives don't differentiate all these sort of initiatives. Quality improvement, productivity, market-facing innovation, uh, M&A, regional growth, expansion, sales training—you know—all these are initiatives, right? But here's the thing that I don't think they think clearly enough about: of all those initiatives, if your goal—I'm sorry, your goal—is profitable, sustainable growth—that's what we promote. Um, Profitable—you got to be getting a, a good return on this—but sustainable. You're not eating your seed corn, you're actually building for the future. It's getting stronger as you go, year after year after year. How do you get profitable, sustainable growth? Turns out that when you look at all of those initiatives, except for market-facing innovation, they all fail the test. Um, just give you one example, do train your salespeople. That's a wonderful idea, but it's, at some point, if we're not delivering new value to our customers, they're going to buy from other well-trained salespeople. Do work on productivity. But at some point, if you are so productive, you got a lights out factory. What do you do next? You reach a point of diminishing returns, and you know it's a race to commoditization bottom. So I think, I think there's um, a problem in a lot of executives not taking market-facing innovation, just as you said, delivering real value to customers over the long haul. And they're not elevating that as well, as Stephen Covey said, the main thing is to make the main thing the main thing. And that's what they need to do. Yeah. No, that's, it's,
0: that's extremely well said. So I think, you know, as you, if you could give advice to imagine yourself 30 years ago, right? Or, yeah. or whatever, right? Imagine yourself in the first five to 10 years of your career. If you could give advice to that person. Right. What would you tell yourself?
1: Well, this may be just for me, um, because others yeah. probably do a better job of this. But um, I, I would um, I was a late bloomer. <clears throat> you know, I, I I got my chemical engineering degree. I got an MBA because I knew I wanted to go over the dark side pretty early. But I kind of just thought, thought myself I was in a more of a, of a reactive mode. Um, like I'll be here when they think I'm ready, they'll promote me. And I was, you know, I spent a lot of time in the trenches, which by the way, ended up helping me if I would have moved up the ranks on a fast track a lot earlier, I don't think I would have learned some things. So, but I think I could have been, um, put a little bit more energy into making things happen personally than I did. Now, I did have some fun. I mean, I, I used to wrap my my goggles in a lab coat and every Friday I would schedule a technical breakthrough over in the lab, which was, you know, it's kind of funny. We're going to do a technical <laughs> breakthrough Friday, you know, my colleague, and I'd order new compounds. and. But one day it worked. We had a breakthrough that led to tens of millions of dollars of sales of a product. Right. And, you know, that's a sort, yeah. So yeah. can I tell you about it? I don't think yeah, I've ever heard, heard the of the story. story. Okay, so we have this product that is used, it's a thick, a water thickener. If you look on the back of most ingredients, you'll see it's in there. It's suntan lotions and makeup and all kinds of stuff, okay? At any anyway, rate, the problem is, if you know how if you make gravy with flour, it gets lumpy? Well, multiply that times 100 for this stuff. You have to use exotic German mixing equipment and, you know, dispersers and stuff, you know? So I was ordering all these chemicals and the, the Palmer scientists, were they didn't want to do my experiments. So I had to work up these really Rube Goldberg experiments with a very good friend of mine, Solomon Lemma, in the lab. And he let me play. We would go and play together. And one day it was just, it was serendipity, you know. I don't know if you've ever heard J. Paul Getty's formula for success. Rise early. Work hard, strike oil, <laughs> so, so there was a little bit of that strike oil, but what was funny is we would dump our new powder in, and we'd wait a minute, and it would just we call it snowing, it would just go in like this, so it was revolutionary, and so uh it led to a lot of sales, and it led to new products also that weren't my original one that just took off, but you know this is a sort of thing i, I if we can get people involved, they don't have to be the inventor. But I got to tell you, I got a multifunctional team together, and everybody was just so energized. I mean, this is the thing: when you do market-facing innovation and you deliver real value to customers, everybody gets energized, and it, it's wonderful for the employees because they feel like they're doing meaningful work. But also, the company is more stable. There's less chance of these mass layoffs and families being disrupted and scattered around the country. So that's why deep down, my biggest motivation for this kind of market-facing innovation and growth isn't to make stockholders wealthy. It's deep down, it's so employees have meaningful, stable careers.
0: It. That's that's awesome. You know, and it's it's interesting because one of the things that that I've also noticed over time. Is there's highly established companies tend to look at startups with this um, gleam in their eye and say, "Ooh, we wish we were more like that," right? Uh, but but most mm-hmm. of the time, mm-hmm. when they're looking at those startups, they're looking at the successful startups, right? Yes. Um, yes, and and they're and turning a blind eye. To all the startups that are lying along the roadside, right, that didn't make it out of the gate, that didn't make it out of right. the garage, right, and um, and they also tend to not recognize the importance of incubation. Right. Yes. Um, right. And exactly. and the thing that I love about new product development, in specifically in established companies is it creates a natural germination capability for those companies to where they don't have to worry about going through startup mode, right?
1: Yeah, exactly, yes, yeah. It's really powerful. Um, and I, I love your, your reference to, to the startups, thinking about inside of a corporation. If you've got the right environment, think of the resources that could be brought to bear also. To that startup oh yeah it's so that's uh it's a
0: it, big part it, of it is yeah. but I've, i shouldn't say but and what i've what i've seen along the lines is i've seen some companies do it extremely well but i've also seen very mature companies demand um what one of my mentors used the phrase instant elegance right mm. they they wanted um, yeah they didn't recognize that it, you know, when you go through that, that startup process and that early stage and that, that growth process, it requires a lot of, a lot of messiness, right. And a lot of protection, right. Because a lot of things are going to get wrong and that, and, and if you compare a, a startup, even whether it's internal or external, if you measure it according to the same metrics that you measure a, um, a successful, well-established Fortune 500 company—that that startup's mm-hmm. never going to work, whether it's internal or never. external. No. And I watch, exactly, watch right. internal. I watch corporations eat their own and destroy their future because they're they're trying to, you know, manage it according to an EBITDA capability without recognizing that that typically early stage success is you know and i I know eric reese wrote this in the lean startup i don't know probably 15 years ago 12 years ago now right which is you've got to have um innovation accounting metrics right which is hey what how do you measure success so which brings me to this question for you right as you've looked across you know hundreds or thousands of companies and tens of thousands of people what do you think are the key metrics for innovation
1: Yeah. Well, so I love your focus on the startup. And maybe if we just think about the transformational uh, innovation just for a little bit, which can be different than the normal run of the mill, new product development. We know the customers. We know most of the job to be done. So when you get into that transformational um, innovation, there's a huge amount of risk associated with it. Right. There's commercial risk, technical risk, operational risk, regulatory risk, huge amount of risk. So we actually developed an offering for this because we saw so many companies struggling with this. And it could be used in first startups, but, but we're using it, more of our clients are using it in large corporation ventures. But basically it's very simple. What you do is you first gather all of the assumptions that must be true for your product to succeed or your project to succeed. Now you may not know all of those, but actually, you can surface a, a very, very high percentage of them in a good brainstorming, well-facilitated session. And we generally bucket them in three categories. <clears throat> is it a market dynamic? Something about the size, the growth, the competitive nature, regulation. Is, it, is the risk associated with an internal capability? Can you scale it up? Can you do it in the lab? Do you have sales reach, all that? But the most important is what are the customer outcomes? You know, is what we're coming up with something that customers really want? And are we also going to be satisfying all the things that customers are getting today and want to keep getting? Right. So you can imagine this brainstorming. It just takes a few hours, but typically the team will generate 50 to 100 assumptions of what must be true. Then we have each individual on the team rate them for impact and certainty. Then we have the team get together and resolve their different points of view. Now, the only things we're really concerned about are high impact, low certainty. If it's low impact, we don't care. If we're already certain, we don't care. But we do care if it's high impact and low certainty. So we put them in red danger, yellow caution, or green safe zones, okay? Now we've got maybe 30 assumptions that must be true, that we don't know if they're true and they're high impact, okay? And so what we do is we then have the team create a plan to go forward and to investigate each of these. And here's the cool part. Most of these things could be investigated cheaply and rapidly. And what what we found with this methodology is half the benefit, we call it minesweeper because we're getting rid of landmines, yeah. okay? <laughs> so minesweeper de-risking. So what we find is half the value is for the team, but the other half is for management. So what happens is before this, teams were going to management saying, here's the black box, trust me, you're gonna love this. They might show a few slides of things that are going well and the manager's going, well, what about this? It's like one of those shell games with the P, (laughs) what about this, have you thought about this, right? You know, terrible waste of time and self-respect. So, so, but what we find is now management is on the team that we because we can show them all these assumptions. Here's how many we knocked down last month, here's where we're going. Nope, we don't need any decisions from you, boss. We're just telling you where it's at. But later, boss, we're going to need to get some pilot, you know, funding and really scale up. We'll let you know. First, let us get rid of all these other assumptions. Now the confidence that management gets from that goes way up versus the old method. Yeah. And I learned, I learned a long time ago, it's really important to get management's confidence. I was, this is when I was in a corporation. I was responsible for putting in the first factory over in Asia, a little place called Qingpu outside of Shanghai. And so my team was working on it. We'd go one evening, one morning, you know, so we had people on both sides of the Pacific. And I had to do a review with uh, the president, and he's pretty tough. He goes, Adams, what about this? So I took my Gantt chart and slid it across the polished cherry boardroom table and said, we've got that on line 72, sir. We went on a little bit more. Adams, what about the other thing? Here it is on line 178, sir. Good work, Adams. And he went on, he beat up somebody else. Okay. So I thought to myself, okay, I get it. He didn't know what was on line 172, but he knew I had a plan to manage resources and tasks and timeline. Now, what I didn't have was a plan to manage risk, but that's what you can get if you get all these assumptions out and deal with them in this fact. That's
0: great. So as you think about that, right, and you're like, okay, now I can I can de-risk it. How do you get out of the gates, though, right? Because sometimes those, those risks can look rather daunting.
1: Yeah, yeah. The risk can be big. I, I first, I think, is to get a picture of all the risk. And now you make a really good point. If there is a big, heavy-duty risk that's sitting there that doesn't cost a fortune to test, those are the ones I want to look at first. Because yeah. I want to kill this thing fast. You know, a lot of times the bigger risks, a lot of times will take a lot of funding, you know, to really sort it out. So what I'll do is the team will take like 90 days and we'll just crank through all the other, as many of the other risks as we can. Because if you get those other risks out of the way, then it lets you focus on the ones that cost some money to test. It's kind of like, you know, options theory, pay a little to learn a lot. And you're basically telling management, hey, I don't need much money from you now. I just need a few more months. And then at a certain point in time, I'm going to need more money. But don't worry about it now. It's coming yeah. later. But if you do that and you can kill it fast and you move on to something else and make sure you celebrate when you kill one yep, of these things. absolutely. <laughs> well, it, you know Liam Fahey, right? Oh, yeah. yeah so sure. I,
0: it, I remember sitting through one of his his sessions when he was just talking about, Competitive intelligence and um, and managing you know market strategy and things like that and you said you know a lot of times you'll get the question from the CEO or from the board, and they'll they'll ask some really profound you know incredibly difficult question. he's like and you can choose whether it's going to take you thirty seconds to answer it, whether it's going to take you you know or you know several million dollars. And and several months to answer mm-hmm. it, and he said most of the time you can get it seventy to eighty percent correct if you get the right six people from the team in the room, and they just talk about it, right? And you they, yeah. said they, they're yeah. going to know. Right. You know, if you get the the right people from your company in the room for half an hour to an hour, and you talk about that one topic, you're probably going to get it seventy to eighty percent right, and. Exactly. I think that's great. And then yeah. after that, the question is, okay, what's the value of the other 20%, right? Do, mm-hmm. How right. how much do mm-hmm. I need to take that other 20% off the board? You know, I, I had a, a president once that I worked for that he was, and I think you and I may have talked about this at one point, he was all about speed and execution. He was like, hey, mm-hmm. I want you to go fast. You're going to make mistakes. As long as you get it 70% right, I'm Okay. And then you will come back and deal with the other 30%. We'll deal with it two or three more times. And then you've got it at that point, 90 plus percent right. And I don't care about the others,
1: right? Now, and I think this is a great point you're making, Mike. And I think it especially applies to B2B because, you know, most new product failures we know come from commercial risk, not technical risk. It's the, the market never really wanted what we wanted. That was true in <clears throat> 1971 with some research and it was true in 2019 with some more research. It's, it's not figuring out what market wants. And so speaking to the point of quickly and cheaply dealing with these risks, with a handful of, com- of, vir- of virtual interviews, because you don't have to even get on a plane anymore, you can do some virtual VOC very rapidly, It's important to do two rounds though. It's important to do a qualitative round where you diverge and get all the outcomes that customers wanted. But then it's critical to do the second quantitative round where you ask how important and how satisfied they are with key ones. And then we have some metrics that tell you, are they, is it important enough? Are Are they dissatisfied enough that they really want you to work on this? And when you had that quantitative evidence, now you've removed the vast majority of commercial risk. And that's what most companies don't do. They usually mess this up, transformational and incremental product development because they, they don't get the voice of the customer. Yeah, no, I, I think,
0: I love the way you phrase that, right? And that's something that I, I constantly find myself revisiting and we'll be in conversations or meetings. And it's understanding whether you're having a divergent conversation or a convergent conversation, because if, if you get those out They're of big. sequence or if you, you know, to use the old Ghostbusters phrase, right, if you cross the streams, then um, yeah. y- bad things happen, right? If you're trying to have a divergent conversation <laughs> yeah. and you ha- yeah. and you intersect that with convergent prematurely, all of a sudden yeah. the conversation
1: dies, right? Exactly. And and, I mean, the human brain is designed to do divergent and then convergent. you know, let's say you're at a trade association, they got a reception there, you know, you look at the uh, the the table of hors d'oeuvres, you you diverge all of them, then you, you converge on the stuffed mushroom caps. I mean, this is, this is what we do all the time. You know,
0: one of the things that you've done brilliantly and and cut me off if I'm, if I'm going to start spilling the candy in the proverbial lobby. Right. Um, But. you've dissected so much elements of the way the human brain processes information through conversation. So like when you think about a discovery interview, one of the things that your training walks people through and I've applied in just about everything, is if I'm gonna have a discovery interview with somebody or if I'm just gonna get to know someone, almost everybody Mm -hmm. goes through a, hey, how are you, what's going on type thing. So tell me about the state of the business. And then people naturally complain, right? They tell you what their problems are, Yes, right? So yes, if you exactly. think about a conversation, hey, how's it going? Well, it's great, this and that, you know, I, just before we got on this call, I, I dropped my car off to get the tires changed on it. Funny, hysterical story about just bad customer experience, right? Absolutely atrocious <laughs> customer. I watched employees get in a fight, not a physical fight, but almost a physical fight I'm going and they're going to be working on my car. You've got to be kidding me. Right? This is crazy. So people like to complain, right? So, they, they, hey, how's it going? They like to complain. And then
1: once they get everything off their chest, then it's an opportunity to dream. Well, this is exactly right. Like, you know, Lily Tomlin said mankind invented language to satisfy his deep longing to complain. <laughs> <laughs> and so so you know, <laughs> So what we recommend is in that interview, it could be a, a more formal discovery interview with sticky notes being projected on the wall. Or it could just be a salesperson meeting with you know, the customer. Listen for those problems. If, if they don't come up, ask them, but, but they should come up, right? And then the key is the listening and the probing. So we teach a what-why-clarify uh, method of probing. So let's say you tell me, I had a really bad experience with my oil change. Okay. And then, then I'm going to ask them what questions can you describe it for me? Uh which, which outfit was it? When did this happen? Mike, you know, what were the specifics that were bothering you? So I'll ask them what questions, you know, to know what was going on. Then I'll ask some why questions. So how did that impact you? You know, how did you feel about that? Get some why questions going. And then, um, and then, you know, maybe the main thing that really bothered you was, uh, you know, how long it took to get the oil change because of all this stuff. So you're saying what you really want to do is minimize the time it takes, you know, in and out to get your, your oil change, or it could be something else. So that's called an outcome turned into an outcome statement. And when we get disciplined to do that, um, we're diverging, getting more and more and more and more outcomes in discovery. This is for new product development now. And then once we're getting hearing echoes, There's no need to do any more discovery interviews. We've kind of got all the outcomes. Now we got to figure out which of those outcomes are important and unsatisfied. Is it the amount of time it took you to get the oil change? Uh, Is it the cost of the oil change? Is it your confidence that they got it right? Is it the other safety checks they did? The number of safety, you know, all those outcomes. There's literally dozens of them for every job to be done. But what we want to do is find the ones you rate high in importance on a one to 10 scale, as you know, and find the ones you rate low on a satisfaction scale, one to 10. Then we're going to zoom in on those in our new offer. I love that, I
0: love it. All right, well, hey, Dan, as as we're we're wrapping up, a couple of quick things, right? Number one, um, I want to say thank you. But uh, before that, tell us a little bit about AIM, AIM Institute, and if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to make that happen?
1: Yeah, they could go out to theaiminstitute.com. I think you can get your justaiminstitute.com also. Um, and they'll basically see three offerings. Uh, our flagship offering is new product blueprinting. This is where we take a one project team at a time. Used to be only big companies. Uh, 70% of our business was with Fortune 500. But now with the new model, Mike, we can handle a very small company that can get a three or four person team. Anyway. New product blueprinting, which is the front end of innovation, voice of customer, all that sort of thing. And then the second one I alluded to, which is sweeper, de-risking. So if you've got transformational projects, we can show you, we have software for all of these offerings, but mostly we've got tools and methods and techniques. But the third one we didn't talk about, just mentioned briefly, you know, uh, a little bit embarrassing here, but for years, our clients would go through blueprinting and say, these are great probing skills. Shouldn't we be using them all the time? And we said, yeah, probably, <laughs> and then we moved on. So last November, we finally put together an offering called Everyday VOC. Uh, it's been hugely received. It's for salespeople, customer satisfaction, technical support, everybody who's interacting with a customer every day. They don't need our software for this one. They just go in and they listen, Then they put what they learned in their CRM, like salesforce.com. And since we're putting it in forms of outcomes, we've removed the garbage in, garbage out dilemma that's kind of limited CRMs over the years. So now we can data mine more effectively. So those are the three things we do. But basically, we're just trainers. We don't really do it for you, but we trained you how to do it pretty darn well. Yeah, you
0: guys do it in a world-class way. And, you know... it was interesting. Uh, we're in the process of, of moving and um, we're clearing out things. And I, I didn't realize how much high quality work you produced over the years until I was having to go back through my files mm-hmm. and clean out files. And I was just looking at the work that, that you and the team at, at AIM with new product blueprinting, with Minesweeper, with Everyday VOC, with what's now been shelved as Launch Star, right, um, is is just amazing. So,
1: well, thank you, Mike. Oh, and I've got one last thing. Uh, this isn't commercial, um, but it may be helpful. Uh, we put together a series of fifty. That sounds scary. Fifty uh, um, videos, but they're only two minutes each. So if somebody goes out to theaiminstitute.com and goes to our insights, they'll see video series, they can sign up, no cost, uh, and we don't even talk about blueprinting in it. And basically, they can sign up for one two-minute video per day for 10 weeks or one a week for a year. And what we do in these videos is really try to give a new mindset for what it takes to drive profitable, sustainable B2B growth through market facing innovation. I think it could change somebody, Well, the hope is it will change people's thinking in a kind of a refreshing way. So that's out there if that could be helpful too. That's You're fantastic.
0: Listening. All right, one, one last question. Have, everything you do is about training and is about just shaping the next generation and leaving it better than you found it. Have, have you considered, are you guys in the process of putting together a masterclass?
1: Not yet. I'll tell you where we probably will go with this. If we go, if we do something additional, it will be for the leaders. Because what we find is when the learners come, the project team members, they're doing great. I mean, it's amazing some of the things they're doing, and they're not being limited by their own abilities or what they've learned. They do great. The problem comes when you have Uh, the company has a bad year or a bad leader or heaven forbid both of them you know then we just regress back to the mean again and so my energy probably will keep doing everything we're doing for the learners the practitioners the mid-level even the gms and so forth but what i would like to do with this new book that i'm working on is try to get boards of directors and c-level suites thinking differently you know, just as a little quick side story, um, I, I mem- remember listening to Dr. Deming, the quality guru, when he when when he was still alive. I was listening to him. <laughs> Shows you how old I am. But he had gotten pretty crotchety. He's very funny, but he was very frustrated with uh, with the way management in America was responding. And I won't mention these. There's a couple other people I respect highly, and I've noticed the same thing with them they've gotten a little frustrated with management and I'm trying not to get frustrated, but I'm trying to get a challenging message out there. And my hope would be if I've got the time over the next couple of decades or so to kind of work with senior leadership, boards of directors, and get real builders in place so that the worker bees can thrive and have these fulfilling. Yeah. Groups.
0: You know, it's, it's interesting. You, you, you talked earlier about, you know, Stephen Covey, the main things, the main, keep the main thing, the main thing, right. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, there's a book out there now. I I forget who wrote it, but it's, you know, what's your one question, right. That you've got to answer the one Mm -hmm. thing, right. Rick Warren had published several years back, right. A purpose driven life. Yeah. And, and I think what you're talking about doing is so spot on in the sense that it's, if you can, you can shape leaders and help leaders become more effective in doing the right thing the right way. You can impact an entire, you know, generation.
1: Um, yeah. Hopefully so, Mike. Some people are out there to comfort the afflicted. I hope to afflict the comfortable <laughs> just a little
0: bit. <laughs> well, well said. All right. Well, um, Dan, thank you again. I appreciate it.
1: Uh, if people want to find you it's aim yeah yeah dan.adams at aim dot com or dan dot adams at the dot com that's to fantastic there. and I, I do want to encourage you guys uh just go
0: check dan and and his team out if you're looking to be able to drive new product growth in your company um specifically if you're looking to drive innovation um And look at it holistically from a complete business model perspective not just a product it's it's a great name and new product blueprinting but it really looks at things holistically and allows you to um dissect the entire business model in order to do that and that the tools that dan and his team have are world class so go check them out dan thank you so much i appreciate
1: it Thank you, Mike, for the time and for all of your advice over the many years. Truly appreciate it, my friend.